Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 234. Well, just ahead, Sentinel One explains how hackers are using artificial intelligence to perform more malicious hacks. And speaking of AI, MongoDB is finding that AI margins aren't what some people had hoped. And a fascinating conversation with Ethan Allen, CEO, Farooq Kathwari. The company bucked every trend you can imagine, moving manufacturing in-house, making furniture in America and Mexico, and is reaping the rewards. We're going to have that story and more, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. And get 20% off when you use our link, Braintrust.com slash Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to Futurum's The Drill Down we explain the business stories behind stocks and move. Joining me on the mic right now is a lamb. <laughs> ben Wilson, what the heck is that? It looks like there's a lamb in your camera right now. No, I, I just, I brought my dog. See that? Your dog looks like a lamb. <laughs> I may be the editor, but I consider her to be the producer on any project I work on. Nice. Uh, uh, that's, that's the greatest dog ever. Is, is what you I call certainly your dog, think right? so. Looks like a sheep. Wait, what kind of dog is that? Seriously. She's a golden doodle. A uh, whole lot of fun. A golden doesn't that's kind of white. She's phenomenal. And not golden. Uh, yeah. Close enough. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? I want to start with Sentinel One. Sentinel One. Sounds like a good number one stock to start with. It trades with the ticker S with a market cap of about $6 billion. Shares are up 22% in the last week. And for the last 12 months, shares are up 65%. What's the story with Sentinel One? Well, the first story is I'm a moron for not owning the stock because, as you mentioned, it's up 65%. In the last year. In fact, we're going to talk about a couple stocks, uh, companies, I should say, in today's show that have had some really fantastic one-year moves. But this is a cybersecurity company, and um, they reported results this week. And I thought there was a really interesting note within their results. Uh, now, you know, in the evolving cybersecurity landscape, things like AI are starting to appear as part of the, the modern cyber warfare tactics. And what they're, they talked about in the conference call briefly, but I thought it was super interesting, is it the bad guys, the crooks, the, 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 the ransomware and, and hacker uh, community is starting to use AI to improve their offerings, if you will, to improve their attacks. And a bunch of high-profile breaches lately have highlighted this immense sort of financial and operational damage that these hacks can inflict underlying the business for Sentinel-1. Um, and Sentinel One saying that they're both using AI to fight AI. And if that doesn't sound like some Terminator level stuff, AI robots fighting AI robots, I don't know what does. Here is Sentinel One CEO, Tomer Weingarten. We're not, uh, we're not seeing, I think, any, any type of pushback per se. I think that uh, some of the questions that we've been, uh, we've been asked um, revolved around potentially, you know, training more module, uh, more models, more AI models that are tailored to the customer environment and how we plan to address that. Um, so I think there's largely a lot of excitement towards the capability um, in terms of how we're thinking about it. Obviously, it takes some time to scale a whole new technology, um, and, and obviously we're doing it responsibly. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure there's 
um, the right safeguards, we want to make sure that privacy is kept. All of these things are incredibly important for a company like, like ours. I mean, we're not just an average consumer company. We deal with security and we need to make sure that these things are, are in place. Um, in terms of the magnitude, I mean, Purple AI is definitely uh, almost another product line for us, right? I mean, it's not just a module. So how we're treating it, how we're structuring our go-to-market, what we anticipate Purple will, um, you know, will contribute in the, call it the next 24 months, um, is definitely in the magnitude of something like cloud, something like data. Um, but again, I mean, it's, it's early days. It looks very, very promising. Um, I think the fact that it's an enterprise-wide capability, so once again, it's not something that you sell per seat. It's not something that just for one footprint. And the application of it um, can be virtually endless in the enterprise environment. I think that puts us in a league of its own in terms of the other offerings that we're seeing in the security space. So AI, not a way to sell on its own, but an AI, an expectation that AI is being used both uh, by the attackers and defenders in the world of cybersecurity. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at MongoDB. MongoDB trades with the ticker MDB with a market cap of about $28 billion. Shares were down 7% in the last week, but it's another one of those jumpy stocks you talked about. The last 12 months, shares have jumped up 170%. Looks like the big uh, increase came around June. So what's the story with MongoDB? So MongoDB, as you mentioned, uh, kind of a bad week after reporting a shockingly great quarter, uh, 433 million of revenues, up 30% from the previous year. They raised the revenue targets for next year, but maybe not as much as some people in Wall Street hope. So up, you're up 170. The good, the, the good news is you're up 170%. The bad news, you had a bad week, so down 7%. But come on. This thing's been on fire. Um, and one of the things that has been driving this is uh, some new products from MongoDB, particularly around, yes, you guessed it, AI. MongoDB Atlas, which is a fully managed cloud database platform that includes some AI uh, aspects to it, grew at 36% year over year, and it is now two-thirds of the company's revenues. Uh, and a, a big deal for them, obviously. Um, customer uh, growth also up about 19% uh, for the year. But, uh, you know, this, this MongoDB Atlas has now that it is the dominant part of revenues is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because the customers love it. And Futurum Group, my new colleague, uh, Futurum Group's uh, Stephen Dickens, has written about this saying the MongoDB's transition from being a noisy upstart to being real, it's, to being a trusted data platform vendor for many large enterprises. And indeed, you can see it in the results. The problem is those, those large enterprises weren't willing to pay the kind of big margins that MongoDB had been used to. So MongoDB... Atlas, and particularly the MongoDB Atlas vector search, the AI, generative AI product within that, isn't seeing the big margins MongoDB has seen in the past. And that might be why the stock got beat up a little bit, because the expectations for, for even greater margins for Atlas, margins might not be there. Here's MongoDB's CFO, Michael Gordon. There's obviously plenty of variability, you know, in the workloads, um, you know, depending on the nature, you know, uh, of what the underlying, you know, application is. So I think it's a little early to, to give a strong, you know, direction to that. I think more broadly on margins, we've, we've certainly been very happy with the margin 
uh, progress that we've made. Uh, I referenced the you know continued efficiencies that we're driving in Atlas. You know, Atlas is roughly two thirds of the business. So as that continues uh, to increase, you know, Atlas still is lower margin. You know, overall. Uh, and so that will have some impact, you know, uh, you know, over the next several years. But we were really pleased on the on the margin front. But I think too early to make a specific call or quantification uh, on the gross margins impacts of AI. So I don't know if that's CFO speak or whatever, but the notion that it's too early to make a specific call on gross margin impacts of AI. I'll tell you what he didn't say: the gross margin of impacts of AI are going to be freaking awesome forever. So I think that that little bit of caution maybe caused some of a sell-off in the stock. But as my colleague Stephen Dickinson says, as Dickens says, this this product is really popular with developers uh, and their sales certainly show that. Corey, what is your next drill down? I want to look at J.M. Smucker. J.M. Smucker trades with the ticker S.J.M., with a market cap of about $13 billion. Shares are up 8% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are down 23%. What's the story with J.M. Smucker? Well, J.M. Smucker makes Smucker's jam. <laughs> what a shocker. And Folgers Coffee and Jif Peanut Butter. But uh, the results that they reported in the last week um, were, were pretty strong. Sales down a little bit, but... Um, uh, when you exclude the the pet food brands they recently got rid of and take out sort of currency adjustments, it's a global company. Uh, they they saw seven percent growth in their business underlying business, and that's pretty strong. Uh, not least of which, because the acquisition of Hostess is underway, and uh, the maker of as you may remember, Hostess went bankrupt and looked like it was going to disappear, and the world will lose Twinkies and Vortman cookies forever. Well, it came back to life. Twinkies and Vortman cookies are part of Smuckers now. And <laughs> Smuckers is in a stronger position in the food business. So says CEO Mark Smucker. We're very confident in the consumer environment around snacking, but specifically to Hostess, um, where they have uh, a lot of great capabilities is their cadence of, of innovation. Um, they have uh, the ability to be very agile in terms of um, the way they approach different uh, times of the year, sometimes seasonals, their abilities around net revenue optimization, and the way they merchandise products. So those capabilities are in part what drove us to have Dan as a leader over both uh, Hostess and Pet because there are some those are things that are similar to our pet snacks business, the merchandising, the NRO, and the innovation cycles. So we feel very confident in, in those capabilities. And we also like, of course, their expertise in C-Store, which over time will, will benefit um, the broader Smucker portfolio. So just, just great complementary fit at a time when our base business is performing exceptionally well. And so just, um, again, feeling feeling very confident about uh, the way this deal has come together. And yes, in case you were asking, Mark Smucker is actually related to the founders of the company. Ben, you thought that was a coincidence that he got a job there? Probably not, just a hunch. I mean, if you show up for the work there, you might want to put that name on the top of your resume, just see what happens. Yeah. Sounds like a good plan. Or if you go to work for Cisco, maybe you can claim to be the, the musician. 
<laughs> you think? No, maybe not. But uh, um, uh, in fact, um, Mark Smucker is the great grandson of Jerome Monroe Smucker, who founded the company in 1897. J.M. Smucker. But yeah, I'm going to say he had an inside track to getting that job. I'd imagine. All right, coming up next. Our guest, Ethan Allen, CEO, Farouk Kathwari, uh, has really cut an interesting path for this company, doing the things that no one else in the furniture industry has done successfully, which is to double down on U.S. and some Mexico manufacturing, to double down on making the things that are rapidly becoming the dominant furniture businesses of, of Vietnam and China and Southeast Asia. Ethan Allen is seeing big success, and the CEO joins to explain how they're doing that right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more. All within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Farouk Kathwari, the CEO of Ethan Allen, a fascinating company. Um, and Farouk, when I... When I was a hedge fund manager, I was uh, involved in, uh, I've never traded in your stock long or short, um, but I was short a bunch of the companies, uh, the furniture makers, because your industry has gone through, I think, more dramatic change than any major industry in all of the world, at least all of America, in the last 20 years. And I don't think most business people or consumers are aware of that. No, you're absolutely right. I've always believed in the principle of constant reinvention. And if there's an industry that needed constant reinvention, it is the home furnishings furniture industry. Take a look at this. Our, our enterprise, we are now celebrating our 91st year. And we have been around for 91 years. We have been profitable for 91 years. And when you see around us, tremendous amount of change, chaos, uh, and which reflects that overall change that is taking place in the world. Yeah. The, Look at this. Well, uh, uh, maybe the biggest change again, in the last 30 years has been the, not just the globalization of uh, the furniture supply chain, but the change in the types of furniture that are made in different places that even 20 years ago, it was rare to see, you know, you might see case goods, right? Bookshelves and desks and simple uh, furniture made in China, made in Vietnam and sent to the U S you rarely saw upholstered goods, fine furniture, um, uh, that was shipped in mass, and that's completely changed. You see, absolutely, it's, it's not only furniture; it reflects all other product ca categories. However, we decided that we will do it our way. You know, we started ninety-one years in manufacturing in Vermont, then went to many other places in the United States, and about thirty years back, we had thirty manufacturing plants. Then I realized. When with globalization, as manufacturing was moving to other places, that we either had to join that or come with a plan that would be special to us. And we did that. We said, let's go south of the border. Now, that's a, it takes a lot of time and investment. So about 15 years back, we first went to the um, middle of Mexico, central Mexico, great, great place. And... They, they, they have lots of talent for, uh, for uh, textiles, cutting. So anyway, we established a, uh, initially a 50,000 square foot plant to cut and sew fabrics to sh ship it to our plants in North Carolina. 
Today, that operation is 600,000 square feet. Wow. 1,000 people making our products and also helping our United States plants still operate in North Carolina. Similarly, you know, we had manufacturing plants of making wood products you mentioned in, in many parts of the United States, mostly in the Northeast and, um, and, and in um, North Carolina, Virginia and all of that. We said, nope, let's take a look at it. And, and manufacturing was moving to East Asia. So we said we want to be strong. And we, of course, started in Vermont 91 years back. We've got a lot of roots there, lots of investment, but that alone was not going to do it. So we looked at and we said, again, go south of the border, we went to Honduras about 10 years back. Now we have in Honduras 800 people working. And amazing thing is this, our wood products you mentioned are now made in Vermont and in Honduras, and you would not, today do, you would not make the difference. Because we have also wood operations in North Carolina that ships all the wood to Honduras. So we have been able to vertically integrate and 75% of our products we make in our North American facilities and 75% is custom. That's the other important change yeah. that has taken place in the last 30 years. So I think that is a very unique um, a unique function. And of course, it also reflects the vertically integrated nature of our business. Well, the vertically integrated nature of your business, but most of the rest of the furniture business has gone in the opposite direction. It's so fascinating to me, right? Most of the rest of the furniture business is sourcing overseas. Um, most of the rest of the furniture business doesn't, if they're in the manufacturer business, they're not in the retail business. Uh, most of the rest of the furniture business doesn't have someone making case goods at the same companies. You've got a designer working with um, uh, the customers. You guys have really bucked. Um, let's compare it to uh, RH, our restor former restoration hardware. They're going bigger stores and bigger stores and bigger stores. Your stores are right now shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Um, it's just, it's so interesting to me that you're doing so well. We'll, we'll acknowledge your revenues are down over 20% year over year. We can talk about that. But your company is doing so well from a, from a longer perspective, doing things very differently than the rest of your industry. Yeah, well, you see, it also reflects our focus. I said we are vertically integrated from the sawmills to manufacturing to retail network. We always had retail network, but today the retail network is a very different network that we had even 20 years back. We've had to relocate in the last 25 years, 80% of our retail. Then also another important thing happened that we just mentioned, that is the smaller size. The smaller size is a reflection of our uh, product programs, our interior design services, which we'll talk about it, and customization. 75% of the products I mentioned it's custom when somebody orders it. Now, it's very hard to make custom products in China and Vietnam and other places. We can make it right here in North America. So it's a question of a model that we have. Then the combination of technology in all elements has really been a game changer. For instance, in manufacturing, we today have 50% less workforce producing the 100% or so that we made before. Similarly, we have 40% less interior designers than producing more than 100% they did 10 years back. The result, good talent and technology. For instance, our interior designers today are able to virtually work with the clients, which 
then goes to what the comment you made about the size of our stores or design centers. Our design centers today reflect the fact that you as a client, when you come in or even virtually meet a meet a designer, they are able today to able to show you all kinds of designs that 10 years back was not possible. You are able to see and they can come in the design center. You can do it virtually. So you don't need big, huge spaces to show all kinds of products because they can virtually show the product as long as, which is another factor, we have consistency in quality. We don't have a customer coming and say, if you buy that, it's a different level of quality. We have one level of quality all across the board. Let's talk a little bit more about that technology. Um, what are the, what specifically are you doing technologically? What vendors are you working with? Where, where do you see the real opportunity for you guys? Because you have consistently mentioned that on conference calls and your SEC filings yep. as the way to get more productivity with fewer workers. Well, the technology, yeah, the technology impacts every element. Let's first talk about our interior design service because we are most likely the largest interior design network around. We have about a thousand interior designers. Most of them work for the company, then others work for our uh, licensees. The interior designers today are able to work with clients, as I said, virtually. Very important. Only a few years back, they had to spend time drawing by hand designs. They had to take a customer and show them five fabrics. Today, the customer in the design center at their home is able to work with a client and you can show them uh, uh, hundreds of our fabrics, multiple choices of finish, and then also show them. And they're amazed that you can take a room and can show them in a few minutes a, a room completely changed over, which also has an implication. As I said, we don't need all that space anymore because of the fact technology, consistency of products, consistency of design, consistency of quality. And, you know, we've also con con uh, looked at our design. What should our designs be? I, I felt that we, we call it, it's classics with a modern perspective. Classics with a modern perspective. And that's what our design is. And that really is not only taking place in furniture. I see it in, in, in fashion. I see it in shoes. I see it in clothes. If you look at it more and more, their products are classics, but with a modern perspective. And that's what we are doing in our home furnishings. Now, you feel like you've yeah. had to go um, up quality because there's so much cheap stuff available, so much, so much a wider variety of cheaper stuff available in the market? We have always maintained a consistency in quality, but certainly technology also in manufacturing has made it possible for us to look at our fabrics, for instance. We used to cut those fabric by hand. At a thousand people cutting fabric, Today, it's a state-of-the-art technology that cuts the fabric for each one item that you are buying. You as a customer, with every, all of our products in upholstery is custom. So when you order it, it goes to our manufacturing, either in North Carolina or in Mexico, Silao, Mexico. And the next day, that fabric by the machines is cut exactly to that sofa or that chair. Now, that's not, that was not possible before. Similarly, our wood products, mostly in Vermont and in Honduras, the CNC, that is equipment, computer-operated equipment, is today able to make parts, which was not possible. Now, the other difference between us is we have one consistency of quality. If that was not the case, 
our people will be all trying to figure out every time what to do, but that is not the case. We make it easier, one level of quality across the board, whether a sofa is at $500 or $4,000, the construction does not change. So let me ask about what's happening right now. So you've seen a, a profitable dividend paying, special dividend paying even, um, uh, and yet you've seen a big decline in sales, margins have held up, What's going? What's what are the macro things happening to your business right now? Well, let's take a look at it. it's the question of what you're comparing to. Yeah, if you compare it back to say 2019, which was a pre-COVID, we're doing better. We're doing our sales are higher, our profits are higher. Now, if you compare to the last three years, I mean, this COVID was an amazing. It had an amazing impact on our, on our industry and many other industries. So it's a question of what you're comparing to. Now, what we did was this. We're still profitable. Look at last quarter, we stayed at 10, 11% operating margin. We had 61% gross margin. Um, now, when you compare to 15 or 20% operating margin or 18% that we had in the COVID, those are extraordinary situations. So I think getting back to, uh, to the more normal range, we are there. Now, uh, I think that uh, sales, of course, are lower as a result, not only of the the fact of pre-COVID, but also there's a softness in the economy. Well, home sales are that. down, uh, the number of home sales are down a lot. That can't That's help right. you. That's right, no, actually, okay, you go through, I mean, I've gone through in, in you know, I've been- A few cycles. Uh, a few cycles, so I mean, this is nothing unusual, but what, what you have to do is this. In a good cycle, you prepare yourself for the next cycle. In a good cycle, you don't do crazy stuff. They'll go make you bankrupt, which we have seen number of our uh, number of our companies in our industry have gone bankrupt because they got crazy. I said in the good times we're going to cut down expenses, we're going to manage our inventories. Our expenses are lower today than they were three three or four years back. Our headcount is lower today than before. If we had just listened to what was happening in the marketplace, we said hey, this is going to be continued. That's not the case. I've been around, I've been around for eight, 10 recessions. So it's, it's in a good times, you prepare for the recession, which we've always done. So we are positioned extremely well in terms of our inventory, in terms of our cash position. Uh, we still give a fairly good dividends. So I think if you are not prepared in good times, we would be, I think, possibly having trouble as many, 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 many in our industry. It's amazing how many have declared bankruptcy. I don't know if it is amazing. I mean, your industry has been through so much change. It's hard to believe that the incumbents, uh, all of them would have survived, but you guys have. Yes. Well, it's a question of, as I said, constant reinvention. There's also and a vindication also, of, of the supply chain model that, that, you know, you see the, you know, here I am in Silicon Valley uh, in San Francisco and Shack 15 here in the, in the uh, ferry building. And, and you see the semiconductors in particular, right? This onshoring of what have been this, multi-decade trend of globalization, um, it's kind of a vindication of what you guys have always done, which is have the ability to have high quality, specialized product made and delivered in the U.S. in short order because your supply chains were, were closer and tighter. And also keep in mind, we also, as part of a vertical integration, we also manage our logistics. We deliver our products at one cost nationally. Whether you are in, in Silicon Valley or whether you are in New York, you're going to get the product delivered at the same price, which was tough 
in the in this covid situation when our freight rates from the east to the west went up three times our freight rates from indonesia to united states went for a container went from $3000 to $30000 crazy we did not have any surcharges we did not change fortunately the higher volume took care of some of the added costs so we maintained it so our delivered price to you in california is the same as next to our plant in vermont or north carolina that that and that means constant reinvention constant reinvention is key the other thing i would mention is this which is a little bit on the higher level but it's simple i have always believed that the main job of a leader is to help their people become better main job of a leader is not just to get the most and and get out i mean i've been doing it for a long time when you create that kind of a culture we are vertically integrated one enterprise but i have insisted and put into place that the leader's job is to help the people become better now it's a long term thinking when you do that you have the opportunity of being around for 91 years and be profitable Prue Kathwar is CEO of Ethan Allen. Thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. All right, Corey. Always good to see you. Good to see you too. All right, coming up next on the Drill Down the Bite, one number that tells us a whole lot. The Drill Down is brought to you by Futurum Group, where analysts, researchers, advisors, content creators, and marketing experts help business leaders anticipate and understand shifts in their industries and build strategies to leverage disruptive innovation. With deep analysis, Futurum Group's extensive industry experience delivers reliable research and data, thought leadership, and actionable advice to help you with your strategy and go-to market efforts. Futurum Group. And we're back with a drill down the bite. One number that tells us a whole lot about Ethan Allen. We talked about how important local manufacturing is for this company, how it allows them to do things like custom upholstered goods delivered in a few weeks time. Well, how much of their stuff is made here in the US? That number, that bite, 75%. Mm. They are bucking the industry trend of outsourcing to Asia. And Ethan Allen manufactures 75% of his products in its own facilities in the US and Mexico. A 2.8 million square feet of manufacturing, Ben, uh, with dry kiln capacity, five case good plants. Case goods are like desks and bookshelves and, and wood stuff and five upholstery plants. Highly customized stuff uh, right here locally in the U.S. or nearby so they can get product to people when they decide what they want. I love it. I think you should go shopping, Ben. Yeah, I think for all more new furniture? furniture. All new furniture for the Wilson household for Christmas. What do you think? I think if the uh, business podcast the lottery is buying, I'm happy to do so. <laughs> I will say the Ethan Allen stuff isn't crazy priced like some custom furniture is. And it looks nice to me. I'm glad to what hear it. I, I guess I know where to look into. Well, thank you for listening to Futurums, The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Thank you to Ben Wilson, our fabulous co-host and our editor extraordinaire. Futurums Drill Down is a production of Futurums, the business podcast network. <laughs>